and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law and the Virtual Justice Project. We thank you for joining us this evening. The North Carolina Supreme Court was established by the General Assembly in 1818, and the first session of the High Court was held in January 1819, making this year the bicentennial of the state Supreme Court. With the 200-year recognition, there have been exhibits and reflections on the state's High Court. UNCTV recently aired a documentary on the history of the North Carolina Supreme Court, and one of the figures who was highlighted was North Carolina Supreme Court Justice Thomas Ruffin. Ruffin was the author of the infamous State v. Mann opinion, which held that enslavers had an absolute power over enslaved people. While State v. Mann was mentioned in the documentary, the discussion of the case and the representation of Ruffin have been troubling to many. On this evening's show, we're going to talk about Thomas Ruffin, the State v. Mann decision, and the need for the honest and complete recounting of history. Joining us for this discussion is Eric Muller, the Dan K. Moore Distinguished Professor in Jurisprudence and Ethics at the UNC Chapel Hill Law School. And also joining us is Attorney James Williams, retired Orange County Chief Public Defender and avid history buff. Professor Muller, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. And Attorney Williams, a frequent guest, always a delight having you. It's good to be here. So, Professor Muller, let's first have you talk a little bit about Thomas Ruffin. So, he was on the North Carolina Supreme Court from 1829 to 1852, and again from 1858 to 1859, and he served as Chief Justice of the Court from 1833 to 1852. Now, he's been described as a great jurist. Can you talk a little bit about his impact on the court and jurisprudence of North Carolina law? Sure. So, um, Thomas Ruffin was, without a doubt, one of the major figures in uh, American, certainly North Carolina legal history, and uh, probably American legal history as well. He was a very, um, a very um, prolific judge. He wrote extensively uh, in opinions at a time when it wasn't necessarily customary to have very lengthy um, uh, opinions setting out the reasoning of the court. Um, he was um, considered to be an expert in the common law of North Carolina, and he wrote opinions for the court that were kind of integral to the economic development of the state. Um, I'm, not talking about, I'm not talking about the part of the economy that was based directly on the labor of enslaved people, but I'm talking about decisions that were about the power of the state, for example, to take property from people and pay for it so that they could put in railroads and that kind of thing, which in the middle of the 19th century was a very important piece of how a, 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 a rural state was going to start to start to um, industrialize to some extent. Um, so he was um, very well known, uh, very very much respected, at least by his class, uh, and um, went on in memory to become somebody that was 
often cited as one of the great judges in American legal history. Roscoe Pound, the dean of the Harvard Law School, um, in I believe it was around 1930, said that he was one of the ten greats. So you know, a very major figure, prominent, prominent figure. Can you talk a little bit about his uh, his background uh, and what uh, led him to the point uh, that uh, he became a, a member? of the uh, North Carolina uh, Supreme Court. Sure. So he was originally from a Virginia family. He wasn't born in North Carolina, but the family moved to North Carolina when he was relatively young. Um, So he was an immigrant. He was an immigrant. That's right. (laughs) Exactly right. Uh, From Virginia, no less, of all places, right? So he... um, he was uh, he, he came from uh, I guess what you'd call a middle class family at the time. This was not a member of the old planter aristocracy, although he had relatives that were in that world. Um, he was sent as a, a lot of uh, people were to co- off to college. A lot of people of his time and place and class and race. Uh, he went up to Princeton actually in New Jersey. And uh, that was his first exposure to a place in which slavery was in the process of dying as an institution. Uh, And um, there are some letters that survive that he wrote to his father back in North Carolina um, when he was up at Princeton expressing, it seems, um, some grave reservations about um, the way in which enslaved people were treated. And... um, you know, got a kind of rebuke from his father, you know, this is the way of the world, and uh, eventually this institution probably will go away, but in the meantime, it's necessary to our way of life. Uh, He came back to North Carolina and went into the practice of law, was very, very successful as an attorney, uh, and uh, eventually found himself rising to the level uh, and rising to the degree of attention where um, he was uh, placed on the Supreme Court. And so when we think about looking at historical figures, of, of course, it's, it's important to understand impacts, positive impacts that have been made. Can, can you talk a little bit, because you've done a lot of historical research and, and your writings kind of reflect your uh, acumen when it comes to history. Can you talk about the need for having a, an accurate and complete understanding of history in order to have a, a good understanding of it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's uh, so common for people when they talk about historical figures, particularly historical figures who were um, doing things that we don't think highly of today, to look back on people and say, oh, well, you have to understand that they were a person of their times, right? They were, they were just a man of their times or a woman of their times. And so, you know, we can't use hindsight. We can't judge these people. We have to just recognize that maybe we might not agree with them today, but gosh, back then they were just a plain old person. Um, and that's a really a very, um, I guess you sort of call it a historical way of thinking about people. Uh, if you think about people you know in your life, you'll recognize immediately that there's people literally spanning the spectrum from the most noble to the most despicable of causes. Um, That's true in, you know, 2019, and it was true in the 19th century as well. So um, we need to look, when we have evidence at least, we need to look at all of the evidence that we can derive about a person and their career and their life, private and public in order to get a full measure of the person. Because the question isn't whether they were a person of their times. 
uh, everybody who lives in a particular time is a person of their times. The question is, where were they on that spectrum? Were they uh, leading towards justice? Were they leading um, towards a better world for themselves and others? Uh, were they um, uh, accepting of change and trying to create change? Or were they uh, not those things? Were they instead at the opposite end of the spectrum, really kind of taking advantage of the worst that was available to society in that period of time? And so my claim about Thomas Ruffin, having spent a lot of time over on the UNC Chapel Hill campus in the Southern Historical Collection, where all of Ruffin's papers are stored, um, you get a much fuller impression of him than the records have tended to suggest. Uh, and my conclusion is that Ruffin was, uh, it's, it's not right to say that he was a man of his times. He was at the worst end of his time. He was a bad man of his times, uh, in, in, in particular in his attitudes about and actions regarding uh, slavery. Um, so that's, that's the way I look at it. I'll just mention one other thing, which is, um, you know, for, for years and years and years, the only record that people had about Thomas Ruffin's life was his collected papers. So this was like a book that was published that was a compilation of all of this correspondence, all of these original documents that are in the archives. Um, none of the documents that mention slavery or anything having to do with Ruffin as a slave trader, a slave owner, slave batterer, breaker of slave families, none of those records made it into that volume. And the reason they didn't make it into the volume is that the person, the scholar who was compiling it was his grandson. <laughs> so his grandson left on the cutting room floor anything that might have made grandpa look bad. And instead, what we got was this kind of sanitized history. So scholars, you know, kind of can't be blamed. You look back at these papers and you see all of these impressive correspondence about businesses and, you know, insurance law and banks and banking. Well, there's a broader story in the original documents, and that's what I've helped to bring to light. Now, James, you are a student of history. Can you share your thoughts and perspectives about how observing or, or reading or, or compiling a, a complete and accurate record helps with your understanding and our understanding kind of generally of, of history? Well, I, um, I think it's important that we, um, especially within the context of, of African-American history, because we know that so much of that history has been miswritten or unwritten, uh, or purposely um, distorted, and so, and I think a lot of what has happened in the past, or what has not happened in the past, impacts you know society um, currently. Whether we're talking systems, whether we're talking customs, practices, um, and so. Uh, but also in terms of how people, how a people, you know, feel about themselves and, and, and who we are as a society. We need to know who we are. And in order to know who we are, we, we need to know more correctly who we have been. And so part of the reason that I think the historical record needs to be correct is for those very reasons. Um, I think what has happened um, 
too often um, is that we do get this inc- incomplete picture of, of individuals, um, particularly where race is involved. And that's what kind of drew me to Thomas Ruffin, even though initially I was not looking at Thomas Ruffin. I was looking at Dr. I. Beverly Lake Sr. because um, an esteemed um, North Carolina legal organization had awarded, uh, had created um, an, uh, an award, a public service award in his honor. And it was named the Dr. I. Beverly Lake Public Service Award. Well, I knew and had known for quite some time that uh, Dr. I. Beverly Lake Sr., uh, to be distinguished from uh, the recently passed uh, I. Beverly Lake Jr., his son, Dr. I. Beverly Lake Sr. was an avowed white supremacist. Um, And even on the bench, he's another justice of the North Carolina, he was another justice of the North Carolina Supreme Court. Uh, His extreme racist views uh, you know, entered into even those decisions that he rendered on the bench. And so it was through this effort to try to correct that wrong and get the Bar Association to undo that award that in doing some research uh, that I came across some of the work um, that Professor Mueller and others had done regarding Thomas Ruffin. And, and I was aware that there's a statute of Thomas Ruffin, this enslaver, the author of one of the worst cases in the annals of, I think, of North Carolina jurisprudence, the State v. Mann case, there's a statute of him in the North Carolina Court of Appeals building, building that used to be called the Ruffin building. It was named, a structure named after him. And so how can that be? How can we know historically who this man was, and then remain silent on that aspect of the state's history, his history, when we know what we know. So um, that led me to want to know more about about Ruffin, and of course we know that portrait of him hanging right over the chief, the current chief justice's head. Uh, when they sit in the North Carolina Supreme Court courtroom to hear cases. Well, isn't it still called a rough and building? I think they they did some remodeling and stuff, you know, I don't know, a decade or so ago. I think they renamed it. I think they started calling it the Court of Appeals building, probably in recognition of the fact that people knew kind of, you know, who he was and what he stood for. Well, let me, you know, uh, Professor Miller, you, you, you talked about, uh, and I know our, our time is winding down for this segment, and, and, and when we get, come back, I uh, want to talk a little bit about the experience of, uh, of Thomas Ruffin in New Jersey when he was at Princeton. You had mentioned that uh, earlier. Uh, but we're, we're at our uh, time to break uh, now. You're listening to the uh, Legal Eagle Review. And we are talking about uh, uh, Thomas Ruffin, who is described as one of the uh, ten greatest jurists in American history, who was formerly the Chief Justice 
of the North Carolina uh, Supreme Court. And joining us for that discussion, uh, Professor Eric Muller and Attorney uh, James Williams. Uh, we want you to uh, stay with us here on the uh, Legal Eagle Review, and we'll be right back to uh, continue that discussion. I'm Nastasia Harris, a second-year law student at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your Virtual Justice Spotlight. While the holidays are often filled with joy and promise for an exciting new year, they can also be a time when people overindulge while celebrating. Driving while intoxicated is a major problem throughout the holiday season, and DWI arrests are at their highest throughout this period. A DWI is the offense of operating a motor vehicle while impaired by alcohol or other controlled substances that renders the driver incapable of operating a motor vehicle safely. There are several considerations that come into play before a person is charged with a DWI offense. Here are a few things you may not know about DWI laws in North Carolina. For anyone under the legal drinking age of 21, any amount of alcohol in your system is enough to be charged with a DWI. The fact that a person has been legally entitled to use alcohol or any controlled substance will not prevent a person from being charged with a DWI. North Carolina has extended the term operation to include actual physical control of the vehicle. So, depending on the specific circumstances, a driver can still be convicted of a DWI without the vehicle actually being in motion. If you are convicted of a DWI in North Carolina, the conviction remains permanently on both your North Carolina driving record and criminal record. Consequences that can arise from a DWI include substantial fines, high insurance rates, license suspension, and even jail time, to name a few. The best remedy to prevent the negative effects of a DWI charge and possible conviction is to never drink and drive. Virtual justice at the NCCU School of Law is the intersection of technology and the legal clinical program. I'm Nastasha Harris. Thanks for listening and happy holidays. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Eagle uh, Review. Thank you so very much for uh, staying uh, with us. Uh, we are talking about uh, this evening uh, North Carolina Chief Justice uh, Thomas Ruffing, uh, who was one of the uh, pioneer uh, justice or jurists on the uh, North Carolina uh, Supreme Court. Our guest, uh, Professor Eric Muller, uh, who is at the... Um, University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill School of Law, and uh, attorney uh, James Williams, former uh, public defender over in uh, Orange County and one of the uh, avid uh, legal historians uh, that we have uh, here in North Carolina who brings to us a lot of these controversial uh, figures, or as some people would say, uh, help us to uh, pull the sheets up. Uh, from uh, some of these uh, uh, characters that uh, illuminated or illuminated uh, in our uh, history. Uh, when we uh, took our break, uh, I was going to raise uh, the question with uh, Professor Mueller because he was talking about uh, Thomas Ruffin's uh, venture into uh, uh, Princeton, into New Jersey, uh, as he was being educated. Uh, and uh, while there, uh, sent a uh, letter to his uh, father discussing uh, a kind of a changing view 
uh, that uh, he apparently had uh, with respect to the plight of uh, people of African descent uh, at, uh, at that time. And you mentioned that his father responded yeah. uh, to him. Uh, and, and, and I guess my question goes to the impact that that response and that experience uh, that he had in Princeton had on him as he later then became uh, the uh, a, uh, one of the top jurors here right. in, uh, in North Carolina. Yeah, he um, we don't have his we don't have Thomas Ruffin's letter to his father that got lost, but we have the response that his father sent him, and from the response you can pretty clearly tell what it was that the son had said, and we can infer that the son had said from his vantage point up in New Jersey where the culture was you know, very much changing on questions of slavery, um, he expressed concern for the enslaved people that he did see. This was the, you know, this was the first time he was in a, a society that was not essentially a slave society. Uh, and um, he was troubled by what he saw. And what his father said to him was, more or less, son, it's understandable that a young man like you up in New Jersey would um, see things that you haven't seen before. Um, and there's no question that slavery is a very unfortunate state of affairs. And um, it's a very sad situation for these poor human beings, these poor people. Um, but, son, um, there's really nothing that we can do about it. Um, it's changing very slowly, things will change. In all likelihood, slavery will eventually um, uh, lose its hold on society, but um, that's going to have to work itself out in time. Um, and so, you know, just it's basically the message that every parent gives to their kid when their kid is eager, exploring the idea of fast change, and the, the parents are saying, well, slow down, son. So what's interesting, of course, is that when he, you get to the late 1820s, and now he's a judge on the North Carolina Supreme Court, he says in this notorious state versus man decision, um, oh, it's, you know, he starts the opinion by saying, oh, it's, this is such a hard case. The heart breaks. It's just lamentable that we have to apply the law when our heart is telling us that we, we should be doing something else. But my job is to apply the law. And the law says that, an, uh, that the owner of a slave has to have complete dominion over the body of the slave in order for the institution to work. That's what state versus man says. Has to have complete and total control over the body of the slave. But he then writes, if there's a solution to all of this, you know, it can't come from us as judges. It's just going to be a slow change. It's going to take time. Eventually, things are changing. Maybe someday the legislature will come around and we'll, you know, pass some laws in this area. But in the meantime, I have no choice but to write this very harsh opinion. And, you know, you look at the opinion and you look at that letter and you see the same message that he received as a kid from his father working its way into that uh, awful decision by the Supreme Court. Okay. Well, you know, we, 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 we've mentioned uh, state versus uh, man. Uh, for uh, law students, it's a uh, shocking uh, decision when you first uh, read it, and then when you read it again, it's uh, <laughs> shocking uh, as well. But for our audience who has not uh, read uh, State versus Man, could you kind of give us uh, some background 
yeah. or a description on exactly what the uh, the issues were in, uh, in in state versus man, uh, maybe some of the background, and then uh, Judge uh, Justice uh, Ruffin's uh, resolution of that. Sure. So uh, I'll I'll jump in on that one just, re- and I'll try to do it real quickly. Um, this happened out in Eden. The underlying facts in the case happened out in Edenton in Chowan County. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, Mann, the case is called State versus Mann, and Mann was named John Mann, and he had rented from someone uh, a slave named Lydia, an enslaved young woman named Lydia. And even the idea, I mean, when I first read this, I thought, oh, wait, you could rent? Uh, we, usually think of, we usually think of ownership as being awful, but you can rent. It's like renting a car or, a, you know, it just, it's, it's just another level of shock, you know, when you, when you figure that out. Anyhow, he rented this um, enslaved woman named Lydia. He was um, a guy who'd been in and out of trouble. John Mann had been in and out of trouble. He had prior arrests. He had prior bankruptcies. He was not from the better part of Edenton society. And uh, there was a point at which he was um, trying to enforce discipline on Lydia. And she, it must have been brutal because she ran from him. She ran away. Or she ran away from him just in that place. So he took out his gun and he shot her in the back as she ran. Um, and uh, he was then indicted by an all-white jury, grand jury in Chihuahua County, and he was tried by an all-white male propertied jury in Chihuahua County, and he was convicted of, the, of, batter, of battery for, for inflicting that wound, that injury on uh, Lydia. So the case went up to the Supreme Court, and the issue kind of before the Supreme Court was, um, should the law uh, of North Carolina allow the person who is just a renter of a slave that degree of freedom to injure, uh, even up to the point of perhaps killing the slave? Or maybe that's a right that shouldn't go to people who are renters. Maybe that's just a right that should be for owners, you know, people who are owners but not renters. So that was kind of the legal question in the case. How should the law treat the rights of the renter, the temporary owner of an enslaved person. Mm-hmm. But the, the, the principal, I, I think, uh, uh, point in the case was that uh, Lydia, the enslaved woman, uh, was property. Yes. And uh, could be rented, bought, sold, uh, and brutally uh, chastised yeah. uh, by whomever yeah. uh, had the uh, superior possessory uh, interests. Yeah. Uh, James, what is it about this case that really, I guess, crawls at at, at your soul uh, when you read it? Because I read it when I was a student, and yeah. I, and I read it regularly now as I as I teach it. No, I, well, first of all, I didn't read it while I was a student, but um, and something as simple as the fact that I'm a I'm an I'm an Eastern North Carolina native. I'm from Plymouth, Washington County, a couple of counties over for Shawan. And when I read the name of the enslaved woman who was property and who was contracted and rented and then brutally shot. Her name was Lydia. I have a first cousin named Lydia. So it was almost personal to me in a certain respect. Um, But just the 
So, you know, from from a factual standpoint, those were a couple of things that sort of struck my attention. But just the sheer, uh, you know, the absolute nature of the subjugation of of the body of the enslaved person to the so-called master, that they could just do anything and they would be absolved. And that's basically what this opinion said. And one of the things that's interesting is, you know, there's, you know, sometimes people talk about how the um, Chief Justice uh, Ruffin was tormented and agonized over this decision. Well, you know, he was an enslaver himself, for one thing. And based upon the research that Professor Muriel and others did, not only did he, was he an enslaver, he from time to time would sell his slaves down south for more. I mean, and where we knew basically most people did not survive that once they got there. Um, and so there are a lot of things about both uh, Ruffin and the case that, that, uh, that bothers me. And we know he knew better because apparently, and I haven't studied these opinions, but a few years later he wrote some opinions that were this authority wasn't as absolute it seems. I mean, I think there were... Mm. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah but, but there, there were a couple of cases. So, so this thing about he didn't know better, uh, and I think I, I, I was reading um, an article that was um, written by um, Justice... Um, well, Judge Jim Wynn of the North Carolina uh, Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, and he made reference to a couple of later decisions ah. that that um, Ruffin had, had 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 written, where he not necessarily acknowledged any wrong that he did in man, but his decisions in a couple of those cases weren't um, necessarily consistent in the absolute. Uh, authority uh, of an enslaver to do any kind of physical harm that they wanted to 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 an enslaved person. So I only mention that to say that, like I said, I think he knew better. And this thing about him agonizing and going through all this torment, I don't think so. I wanted to, in that connection to what James has just said, I wanted to commend to all of your listeners the work of an independent scholar in the area named Sally Green. It's a name that some in Orange County might recognize because mm-hmm. she was on the Chapel Hill Town Council for years and she's now on the county commissioners. Um, she um, did deep archival research into the background of all of the players in this case mm-hmm. and found out all sorts of things about, uh, not much can be reconstructed about Lydia, but she was able to reconstruct a lot about John Mann and she was able to reconstruct a lot about all of the other white jurors and others who participated in this trial before it got up to the Supreme Court. And it's just as James says, like the the idea that this was an absolute necessity to rule in favor of man, um, all of the jurors in the case were white. They think about it. A white a white man injured an African-American enslaved person and an all-white jury in the 1820s convicted him. I mean, think about that. Think about who, who this guy must have been and what a bad man he must have been known to be. So there, to say that he had no choices 
when all of the propertied white people who had touched the case up until he got it saw it very differently tells you a lot, I think, about the choices that he actually had and that he was actually making. And so how do we, so Eric, you mentioned that when we look at the uh, statements that were made by his father in the letter, it seemed to resurface in the opinion. So do you think that Justice Ruffin was just kind of giving lip service to, you know, the agony that he was feeling? And because he was in his early 40s at the time that this opinion was written, can you talk about why it may be that he wanted to put that particular kind of face on the opinion? and why he might not want to be seen as sympathetic to the slave trade. And, and that would lead into, you know, what he did do as a slaver. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I, you know, Ruffin, um, was, as, as a North Carolina Supreme Court justice, um, was savvy enough to recognize what was going on in society at that time, the conflict that was brewing and continuing to brew on the issue of slavery between South and North. Um, I think that Ruffin recognized that he was going to have not just a local but perhaps a national audience for uh, for this opinion. And I think, you know, as we're, we're speculating, obviously. You can never know the actual motives. But what I imagine is that he was trying to craft an opinion um, that would um, look more humane um, in the eyes of somebody who might otherwise use the opinion as a way to attack, further attack the institution of slavery. It was a kind of sweetener, I guess you might say, in a very otherwise bitter opinion. And, uh, you know, in a certain sense, um, it worked. Um, Harriet Beecher Stowe, um, you know, when she wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin, um, there's a character in that in that novel who's sort of based on Ruffin's character, the judge character in there, she takes at face value the idea that this was an honorable man who was anguished by this choice that he felt he had to make. Um, On the other hand, you know, State versus Man very quickly went into um, manuals that Southern plantation owners and overseers would use in terms of knowing what they could and couldn't do. So uh, whatever his intent might have been, uh, it probably ended up uh, leading to more brutality against enslaved people, um, uh, not less. Uh, so yeah, so, um, yeah. Well, you know, he was, um, he has been described by uh, Harvard Law School Dean Roscoe Pound, who was supposed to be one of the greats in uh, American uh, jurisprudence, as one of the ten greatest jurists in American uh, history. Uh, how, one, how did North Carolina uh, become elevated to being one of the top uh, jurisdictions or legal jurisdictions in the country? And then what caused uh, uh, Thomas Ruffin uh, to rise to this uh, level of, uh, of acclaim uh, within the uh, legal uh, profession that someone like uh, Dean Roscoe Powell uh, would label him as one of the ten top jurists uh, in the uh, in the country. Well, I, I'll just mention briefly, and then I'm going to turn it over to the to the learned uh, Ruffin <laughs> scholar here. But one, a couple of things that I read uh, come to mind. One is apparently he was a prolific writer of opinions. I mean, I think you know several hundred opinions he um, he he authored 
But I think uh, you know, it seems that his groundbreaking legal work was within the realm of the railroads and and and, and state power, state power, and that yeah. sort of thing. And I think that's what caught a lot of attention of scholars and others around the country. So I know you know a lot more. Well, about I'll that just than I, I mean I'll just add to that. I mean I agree with everything James has said, and I would just add to it that he. You know, he was unquestionably a brilliant man, Mm -hmm. and he uh, was an outstanding writer. He wrote very clearly, um, and he wrote at length, as Mm -hmm. James just said. Um, And also, you know, he was he was um, he was an ambitious man. I mean, I think he knew that he was um, that he was making that he was making law, and he was drawing attention from this work. And when you think about the times, the 1840s, the 1850s, the growing industrial economy. Um, these were useful opinions, right? These were these drew attention because they were useful. They were then emulated by judges in other states where similar questions were arising. These were these were the legal underpinnings of the industrial revolution, basically, and the the expansion of our economy in the nineteenth century. So, I think part of the way that he got so well known is that his opinions were so well re- so well reasoned, so well written. Um, lengthy and um, very, very useful. So he probably didn't have research assistance. <laughs> I'm guessing he did not have research assistance. So we're going to take a break right here. You're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking with Eric Muller, who is a professor of law at UNC School of Law, and attorney James Williams. And we've been talking about North Carolina Chief Justice Thomas Ruffin and the infamous opinion of State v. Man, and also the need for the honest and complete recounting of history. We'll be right back. We hope you stay with us. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson, and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking with Eric Muller, the Dan K. Moore Distinguished Professor in Jurisprudence and Ethics at UNC School of Law, and Attorney James Williams, the retired Orange County Chief Public Defender and avid history buff. And we've been talking about Thomas Ruffin, and the legacy that he has left here in North Carolina and, and wanting to make sure that there's a complete understanding of, of his background. And Eric, you talked initially about, when you talked initially about uh, Justice Ruffin, you had mentioned that he was a slaver, he was a batterer, uh, that he was a promoter of the institution of slavery. And that portion of his legacy is not always um, recounted. Can you talk a little bit more about that background? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, what, what's historically been known about Ruffin is that he was himself a slave owner. Um, and knowing that, that's, what, that's when people say, oh, well, look, he was just a man of his times. But when you dig down deeper, you realize that he was not just your sort of standard issue owner of human beings, as awful as that was. Um, he was much worse. So just three things quickly. One of them is he wasn't just a slave owner. He was a slave trader. 
The slave trading business by the 1820s had become the trading, right? So now we're talking about an, so, a, a bill, a business mm -hmm. who's it's you're not you're not using enslaved labor on your plantation. You are going up north and buying people, and then you are going south and selling them for more money. Um, he entered into a partnership with somebody to run a slave trading business. He knew that it was. Um, not an honorable thing because he said in the partnership papers that his partner was never to mention Ruffin's name as being involved in the business. So he's not just a slave owner, he's a slave trader, number one. Number two, the papers reveal that he himself was a batterer of slaves. There's a very heartbreaking story of an enslaved woman named Bridget who shows up on his plantation and gives him one morning a look that he doesn't like. And so he, he's walking with a cane and he just takes the cane and he starts beating her with it. Um, and uh, we know that this happened because this, he did not own the slave whom he beat was not his slave. So it was kind of like state versus man in a certain way. It was not he did not own her. So he had to write to her owner and ask basically for forgiveness for having done damage to Bridget. Um, to this, the proper, the human property of this other slave owner. So he was a slave trader. He was a slave batterer. And then, in a certain sense, most heartbreakingly of all, the records show very clearly that he was as callous as could be about breaking up families, selling little mm -hmm. children away from their parents, selling husbands away from wives, and vice versa. Um, even in situations where he knew full well um, that. These were long elderly people who had been in long decades of, of, of marriage relationships. He thought nothing of just if he got a good price for the person, they were gone. So slave trader, slave batterer, and breaker of families. That's not just your standard issue dude from the 1830s who, ha who happened to own a few slaves. I mean, that was bad. But this was way worse, and it's when you know that about the man that you begin to realize that he was on the wrong end of his generation. And James, why do we not know that about Thomas Ruffin? Well, <clears throat> I well, I think we don't know that about Thomas Ruffin for the same reasons we, you know, certain other aspects of the historical record are just more or less whitewashed because there's things that people feel more comfortable not knowing. Sometimes it hurts to know the truth. Um, and so if you are in the position to write what is supposed to be the history and the truth, then, uh, and you don't, you feel that part too painful or too difficult to deal with, it's left out. And so I think that holds true for a lot of the aspects of history, not just in terms of race, but other aspects of, of history. And I think that kind of plays out here. As it relates to Ruffin more specifically, though, a couple of things sort of come to mind because we talked about this statute of him um, in the Court of Appeals building. I think that statute was erected um, in uh, 1915, if I'm not mistaken. And so we look at what was, so that was, what, 17 years after the, 1898 massacre coup d'etat in uh, in, in mm -hmm. Wilmington. Um, it was two years after I believe the so-called Silent Sam was erected on UNC's campus. I think that was in uh, 
1913. Um, and 1915 was the year of the um, Birth of a Nation film. Uh, we were in what, you know, I think historians call the nadir. We're in the height of Jim Crow. I mean, probably one of the worst racial periods in our country's history. And somehow, I, I don't know exactly what was going on, whether any of that was given some, but it was, that's when this statute of this man who was, you know, a, a, a slave owner, trader, and the author of this horrible decision was erected in a building of justice for the state of North Carolina. And then you've got this portrait of him uh, in the Supreme Courtroom, the highest court in this, in this state, um, which I think, and when you think about African-American attorneys in particular who go into that courtroom to argue cases, I think it's an extreme disrespect to them. And I know some of them historically, you know, in the 50s and 60s, were treated disrespectfully because of race. Um, and to have, you know, I think who we, who we um, hang, do, do monuments to and have statues of and have portraits of is an indication of who we value as a society and the message that we're sending by having this man's portrait there, you know, in the Supreme Court, I think is the wrong message. Um, and, and, and it needs to be removed. The statute needs to be removed. And I think these conversations that we're having today um, needs to be part of that effort because I think there are a lot of people who don't know well, the, the, the irony about. is that uh, the uh, present Chief Justice of the uh, North Carolina Supreme Court, uh, Sherry Beasley, mm -hmm. uh, sits uh, right in front of, uh, of that uh, photo uh, portrait uh, every court uh, session. That is and, correct. And uh, as you stand there to argue uh, to the uh, court, it is so visible. It is. Uh, to everyone, but I think that the the, the issue most people uh, blanks it out. They blank it out. They 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 don't realize one who it is and the import uh, of that uh, on the court and the history uh, that uh, that surrounds it. So. Right. Well, one thing I'm glad you mentioned that because while um, Justice Mar former Chief Justice Martin was still Chief Justice, there was. And order order entered. I think it might have been signed by uh, Justice Mike uh, Michael Morgan to uh, appoint a committee regarding that portrait. Um, in the of, of I don't know whether they called him out by name. They may have just said portraiture within the Supreme Court. Um, to study that and come up with recommendations, whether or not the committee has actually been appointed yet and, and what the outcome of that work might be, we don't know. Hopefully they'll call um, 
Professor Muirlin, maybe Sally Green, in the course of their <laughs> deliberations to make a nice. decision that on that. That would be very yeah. nice, yes. Hasn't that commission, though, been going on for, or, or at least the work of that commission been going on for a while? No? Okay. My understanding is that um, it, it was created, but then it re- didn't start convening until relatively recently, like within the last few months. Mm-hmm. And I have, I've, uh, I don't know what progress they're making. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, you mentioned uh, Silent Sam uh, and uh, Julian Carr yeah. uh, and uh, his uh, role in uh, Silent Sam has been uh, memorialized into the name of Carborough. Yes, uh, North Carolina, which is now probably one of the more uh, liberal uh, towns uh, in, uh, in in North Carolina. Uh, but Thomas Ruffin uh, also had a uh, town named uh, after him, uh, Ruffin, uh, uh, North Carolina. Really? And uh, that's in, uh, huh? I think it's Northampton? No, it's not there. Rockingham. Uh, and there's Rockingham a dor- County. And there's a dormitory named for him on the UNC Chapel Hill campus right, as well. And he was a uh, trustee. Mm-hmm. at the University of uh, North Carolina for some for 24, time. 25 uh, years uh, of, uh, of, uh, of, his, uh, of his life. And uh, with a plantation in Alamance mm-hmm. County, probably right down the street from where he used to live. Right down the street. In Hillsboro. Uh, so, uh, it's, uh, uh, and there's a road named after him in Hillsboro, Thomas Ruffin Road. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think there's some property, some town property that is maybe the old Ruffin house that the yeah. town has. Yeah. Some, so yeah. On the yeah. historical rec- re- uh, register. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For reasons that I've never been able to understand, lots of people get very nervous when you start talking about renaming things, mm-hmm. you know, or, or, or removing a portrait. Um, and I wanted to just pick up on something James said a moment ago. When you think about that statue, like, should we keep it there? Should we leave it? We're not really honoring Thomas Ruffin there. We're honoring the decision of the people in 1915 to honor him. Mm -hmm. So if we keep it there, what we're perpetuating is the decision that people made at the height of Jim Crow um, Mm -hmm. to, to pick this man out for, you know, kind of secular worship. And I guess what I'd say is, you know, the man's had his hundred years up on that wall. He's he's had his time. It's, nobody's saying that it should be the portrait should be burned, you know. But just take it down. Let's put somebody else up there who is more representative of our world and our values, rather than the values ninety or hundred years ago when people decided they wanted to put him up and build that statue. That's how I see it, I, yeah. but I know others see it differently. Yeah, right. Well, there, there is a growing awareness uh, among people, an increasing uh, a growing awareness among people about these, uh, these figures. Uh, here, here on our campus, we've had to deal uh, with, uh, with that. Over at Duke, uh, they've had to deal mm-hmm. uh, with that. And at, uh, at Carolina, they've had to deal with it in various courthouses around uh, you know, we uh, we've had to uh, address right. uh, that issue. So it's a kind of an ongoing uh, realization that people are coming to that uh, those things that uh, seem commonplace uh, so uncommon and out of place, and that we need uh, to address the uh, images that's being portrayed right. uh, by them. You're right because you're right because just this week. Um, 
the final decision was reached by the Superior Court related to the monument in um, Chatham County. And then I think there's a monument in Guilford County that also has been decided that it will be removed. And these are monuments that were in courthouse squares. I mean, and that's that's what, for me, that's even more significant than monuments in other places. I mean, because we know that justice has not always been dealt with an even hand, and quite often racism played a role in injustices that occurred in the courthouse. And when you add to that that you've got a symbol of of not only racism but white supremacy in a bygone era, right there as you enter in this space trying to achieve justice, it, it should not be. Well, I'm always amazed whenever I go to Wilmington and I see all of the statues and mm-hmm. monuments uh, mm-hmm. there to uh, glorify uh, the Confederacy and mm-hmm. in particular the 1898 right. uh, overthrowers uh, mm-hmm. who were uh, engaged in the uh, 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 coup, d'etat coup d'etat that occurred uh, there. It's, uh, it's just amazing uh, that uh, you know people are not rising up uh, mm-hmm. to uh, demand uh, changes, but, uh, but they're still there. You know, and we have now, in, by statute, uh, made it uh, more, more difficult, difficult. Yes. Uh, to uh, remove those things that are in place because they want to preserve the history of uh, traitor nation. Mm-hmm. Well, I think um, I think the future. That statute does create a problem. In fact, that statute, in fact, one of the things that I think is striking about the settlement that was reached by UNC and paying out $2.5 million to the Sons of the Confederacy, from what I read, what the Sons were trying to do originally was to tighten up that statute to make it even more difficult to remove those those monuments and they didn't succeed in that effort and so I think that's when money came into play but but my point is simply this Uh, if we're not careful uh, then that statute that I think is an abomination could get even worse Um, so we gotta as that song says keep our eyes on the prize Um, yes I don't know how many scholarships we could award for a million dollars. So it's uh, it's amazing. Uh, yeah. But uh, yeah, we, 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 we need to know more about uh, Thomas Ruffing and those persons who are in the legal profession uh, right. need to uh, know know more about them. And even I guess our present justices on the uh, North Carolina uh, Supreme Court and. Uh, those uh, judges who are on the uh, North Carolina Court of Appeals yes. ought to be made aware of I, this history. I, I think that you know, one of the things that we can do, one of the things that we're doing when we're reconsidering these people um, is we're, in a certain way, we're giving some honor to all of the people who we don't have access to, mm-hmm. like Lydia, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. the, the, the enslaved woman who was beaten, or Bridget, the enslaved woman that Ruffin himself beat with his cane over on, over in uh, Alamance County. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's a way of trying to recapture um, things that have been lost. 
And I think that that's, you know, I, I'd rather think about it as honoring Lydia and Bridget right. rather than dishonoring Thomas Ruffin. Mm-hmm. I, I have no problem with the dishonor to Thomas Ruffin, <laughs> but I, I, I think that I, I would think of it, I just like thinking about it more as a way of trying to bring back some of what was lost. And, and uh, Irv, I think what something that you said resonated with me. I do think it is incumbent upon members of the bar, members of the profession to undertake this effort. I mean, this legal system is ours, and I think we have a certain responsibility uh, to the, not just to the public, but to the profession to correct certain flaws when we become aware of them and to make sure that uh, we get that record straight. So, that's all right. Well, we're going to have to end it there. We would like to thank our guest, Eric Muller, professor of law at UNC School of Law, and attorney James Williams. Thank you so much for your insight and for giving us much food for thought. And we'd also like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you've learned something. If you have any comments or questions, please send us an email. You can reach us at LegalEagleReview at nccu.edu. And we're happy to announce that you can now find the show on iTunes and Google Play in podcast form. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed and engaged. Stay informed and engaged.